Mike Proctor, it's great to have you on the podcast. How are you? Um, fine, thanks, Matt. A bit of a, a journey back home, but uh, everything's good back in South Africa. So you're back in Durban? Yeah, I'm back uh, in Durban, South Africa. arrived uh, a couple of days ago. Have you spent some of the English summer in England? I spent about two months in England. I got on, over there early June uh, and stayed till uh, 7th of August. So a, a good two months. So you, you got to sense the ashes fever? Well, the ashes fever, that was really something else. I mean, I was I was really spellbound by the whole the t- test series. And, you know, it, it was every day, almost every session, no one knew what was going to happen. It just, you know, it ebbed and flowed, the, the whole the whole five test matches. It was really absorbing. And uh, it really is, I, I know that I was over in, I think, 205 when, when England won the ashes. Um, but I think this actually... In terms of sheer entertainment, I think that beat that. It, it was absolutely absorbing. Now, Mike Proctor, I've got 20 questions for you. Before I start, I should just say that you are thought of as one of the, the great fast bowlers. You played only seven test matches, and we'll come to that. You had a bowling average, a test bowling average of 15. Your first-class bowling average was under 20. You scored 48 first-class centuries. You've taken hat-tricks. You've scored quickly. You were a massive figure in the game. Of course, you're famous partly because although you had some of the advantages of apartheid as a white person, some of the unfair advantages, you also had your test career effectively taken away from you because of apartheid, because of international reaction to the evils of that regime. So you have an extraordinary story to tell. And part of that story is the work that you are now doing in townships in South Africa to try to bring the game of cricket to children who are underprivileged. So there's a lot to fit in. And I'm just going to start by asking you this. How do you rate yourself as a cricketer? Just how good were you, modesty aside? <laughs> That's a very, very difficult question. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed my cricket very much and I enjoyed being an all-rounder. Uh, since I started at, at prep school, um, I batted predominantly a batsman, and I kept wicket, and then I bowled offspin, and eventually when I got to high school, I bowled sort of medium paces, and as I grew up and grew taller, I suppose, and a bit of width on me, um, you know, I, I got quicker, and I really only achieved the top pace, I reckon, when I was about 19, 20. Um, as an all-rounder, you know, I just I just enjoyed enjoyed the game. The one thing I did enjoy was, was winning, and if I made hundreds or, or took wickets and we didn't win the game, um, it, it didn't feel that important to me. And, you know, the big occasions came and um, I really enjoyed them. And it, in fact, Lords is, is one of my famous, famous grounds. I mean, it is the most famous ground in, in, in the world by any stretch of the imagination. And you ask any cricketer, you know, in the world, what ground would he like to play on? And he would say Lords. And I first played there in 63. Uh, for South African schoolboys against, I think it was Canadian schools. Then I played 1970, uh, rest of the world with Gary Sobers against England, a very good English side. 73, we had Gillette Cup was, was for uh, Gloucestershire in 77, uh, Benson Hedges for Gloucestershire. Um, and then in 89, I was director of cricket at Northampton. Um, and all those games we won. So uh, Lords bring, brings back very, very uh, happy memories for me, that's for sure. Don't forget that first test match that South Africa played at Lords after coming back from isolation. I think it was 1994. I think I went to all four days of that. And you were the coach of South Africa at that time. And you absolutely pummeled Mike Atherton's England. Yeah, we did. And I think up to that point, I don't know since since then, but I think a lot of touring sides 
came to England, and they always did very, very well at Lords. I think it was, it was the occasion really was was very much in their favour. Um, they were very excited about it. And, you know, that 19, uh, 1994 was two two months after Nelson Mandela was inaugurated. He was inaugurated April April 94. This this, this test match, uh, I think, took place uh, in about June, June July. Uh, and we really did, did, did win pretty comfortably. What was an interesting uh, thing that happened during that test match was Michael Atherton and the the, the, the the dirt in his ball. I don't know whether you, you remember it. Dirt in his pocket. But uh, it was certainly a, a wonderful test match for us. And I sort of, uh, in my mind, and I think I said it at the time, I dedicated that to uh, our new president, Mandela. Mike, if people want to watch you bowl, there isn't a huge amount of footage out there. But there's a clip on YouTube of you taking four wickets and five balls for Gloucestershire. And I think the first wicket was Gordon Greenwich. And I think the second wicket was Barry Richards two of the greatest batsmen of all time. Was there a particular thrill of pitting your skills against some of the very best? As I said, you didn't play a very long test career because of the sanctions against apartheid, but through your playing at county level and elsewhere, you did manage to come up against some truly astonishing cricketers. Was it a particular buzz against those guys? I think there was to a certain extent. You know, I I wasn't playing test cricket. Uh, but in a game like that Benson Hedges semi-final uh, against Hampshire, uh, you know, I remember it vividly. I really do. We we made, we only made about 190 on, I think, under 200 on a on a good padding pitch on a very fast outfield, a lovely day at Southampton, and we were something like 100 for one at lunch, looking at, you know, a par score being about 230, 240, I would guess. And Hampshire got off to a, a reasonably good start. They were 18 or 19 for Norton. I decided to change my line of direction to bowl around the wicket. And the ball, funnily enough, seemed to swing more from around the wicket than over the wicket, which is uh, which is a contradiction, really, because over the wicket, the ball's naturally coming into the batsman, uh, to a right-hand batsman, and around the wicket is almost going away from him. But the ball did swing, um, and I managed to bowl Gordon Greenwich, and I got Barry LBW, and then um, another LBW, and then I, I bowled... Uh, uh, John Rice, who was the the um, Hampshire captain, so I think from eighteen nineteen for North, they were nineteen for four. So it was a thrill to to get those guys out, but it didn't mean at that particular time it didn't mean anything to me as far as Gordon Greenwich or Barry Richards was concerned. It was just the fact that we were in a semi final, I was playing for Gloucestershire, and we just needed the wickets we could get, and we had to take wickets if we were going to win the game. And funnily enough, the most I think one of the most important overs I bowled in that game. Uh, was a penultimate over because I didn't want to leave the last over and and me run out of, of bowling time, if you like. So I bowled the penultimate over, and I think they needed nine to win at that stage. Um, and they were eight down. And I managed to get a wicket. I think Stevenson is the keeper. I got him out caught behind, and it was a, a maiden as well. So uh, they then needed nine off the last over. And Brian Brain happened to bowl Andy Roberts, and we won by, I think, seven runs in the end. But, you know, great for, for Gloucestershire and great as being his captain. You were able to combine serious pace and swing. As a bowler, which of those two attributes do you think helped you the most? Was it the pace or was it the swing or is it the combination? I think, obviously, the combination. You know, when, when the ball swings, the faster you bowl, obviously, the more difficult it's going to be to, to play. Uh, but if I had to choose, I would probably say swing. Um, and when I bowled around the wicket, uh, I used to jump very close to the stumps and I had a very high, high arm action. So I was almost like a, a, left arm over, a left arm over bowling to a right-hand batsman uh, in terms of getting LBWs. 
Um, so I did get a, a lot of LBWs, particularly towards the end of my, my career when maybe I slowed down a little bit uh, and predominantly bowled around the wicket. I remember helping my youngest brother to learn to bowl when he was a small boy. And I think, and I, and I may be misremembering this, but I think he bowled off the wrong foot. And I think he bowled off the wrong foot throughout his time playing at school after that. And I remember thinking that you bowled off the wrong foot as well. But this simply isn't true, is it? And by the way, bowling off the wrong foot, for those who don't know what this means, for those who don't know cricket so well, if you're a right-arm bowler, you tend to land as your arm is coming over. You sort of land on your left foot. But you appear to land on your right foot. But it's not quite right, is it? No, it's not. Um, you know, it, it looked peculiar. I'll never ever forget the first time I saw myself bowling uh, was on a in a movie. Um, and there was a recording of South Africa playing against Australia on movie tone or, or whatever it was. And I, I couldn't believe how, how unusual my action was. But as you rightly so, as your left foot comes down, your right arm comes over and you deliver the ball and the emphasis on your left foot following through. But I had a very quick arm action. So as my left foot was coming down, I sort of delivered the ball. And it looked as though it was off the off the wrong foot, but it wasn't. It was sort of just a very, very quick arm action and, and using no body at all, really. That's why um, I found the faster I ran in, the quicker I could bowl. Tell me this. I asked you which was, was the biggest attribute, your swing or your pace as a bowler. But what, what gave you the greatest pleasure as a cricketer, your batting or your bowling? Because both can be incredibly thrilling when you're in the zone. If you're in the middle of taking a hat-trick, and I, you took two or three hat-tricks, I think, of, of LBWs, which was very unusual, I think, but you also could hit centuries at scintillating pace, couldn't you, Destru- in a destructive way, which, when you were absolutely at your finest as a, a batter or a bowler, which gave you more pleasure? I think that that's a difficult question to, to answer, really. I think it depended on the situation. You know, if we were in a, if we were in, in a tough situation... Um, I, I really seem to concentrate on my batting more. Um, and when I say I, I would sort of relish the, the fact that we, we were struggling. And, you know, I recall games when we, I think the the Gillette Cup we won in 73, we were, I think, about 10 for two, 20 for three at the, the semi final, and I got 100. Uh, in the final, we were about similar situation. We were two, three down for nothing, and I got 90-odd. And I think it sort of bring, brought the best out of me. But having said that, uh, you know, in tough situations, when we were under the pump, as it were, with bowling, you know, I, I obviously tried to, to take wickets or nullify the situations by keeping the rungs down. So it really did depend on the situation. I, I loved – I probably loved batting – better because it was it was a lot easier but you know having to run in from 20 30 meters and uh, fill tilts and deliver it uh got a bit tiring and it it, it would, does take its wear and tear on the body but uh, to answer your question whichever whichever we won if we won and i'd got the hundreds i enjoyed that if we won and i got wickets i enjoyed that but the winning to me was uh, of paramount importance how do you look back at the frustration of your test career i think you played all seven tests against australia that series in South Africa where you won 4 0, didn't you? Was a Correct. that was a sign that the team at that point, the South African team at that point, was quite possibly the best in the world. You never got to test yourselves though against the West Indies. How difficult for you as a 
cricketer. And of course, the far bigger picture was apartheid and the effect that that had on the people of colour in, in South Africa. But first of all, let's just deal with this. How big a frustration was it for you as a cricketer to miss out on your test career? To be honest, um, you know, it was very disappointing to miss out on a test career, but it really didn't bother me that much, to be honest. Um, I realised that I first went to, to England in 63. Uh, I then played county cricket in 68. And, and I could see the writing on, on the wall about South Africa. Uh, the, the, the 1970 tour to England was cancelled. And I honestly, once that was cancelled, I honestly couldn't see us playing test cricket again. Uh, the rest of the world were totally against South Africa because of the policies, uh, which I agreed with with the rest of the world for sure. No doubt about that. Um, so I, I looked at it, and um, during that time that I wasn't playing Test cricket, when I when I was uh, playing for Gloucestershire and, and playing for Rhodesia, as it was then, um, I, I felt myself fortunate because I was was playing uh, cricket in it uh, full time because there was no professional cricket in South Africa at that time. Barry Richards and I were the only two professionals. And there were so many people in South Africa uh, who never had the opportunity that I had. Um, I was fortunate to play test cricket for South Africa. Um, and there were a lot of people in South Africa, both whites and non-whites, obviously non-whites, who, who never even had the chance to, to represent their country. So it, it really didn't bother me that much. And I know... You know, I've uh, done a done a talks with with Peter Hayne, as as you know, and um, I was very anti him because, and I think a lot of people were. He was trying to stop the tours, uh, but looking back, and it didn't take me too long to work it out that you know the policies in South Africa had to change. If there was no change in South Africa, there was going to be no sport. And um, you know, as, as I've said before, I've been quoted as saying, you know, if if forty thousand people um, are going to be better off uh, for for someone's test career. Well, so be it. I'm I'm pleased to have to have helped forty million. Sorry. Have you felt your views change over the years? Did you sort of feel yourself, your attitudes evolving with the passing of years? Yeah, I think it it, it must have. Um, you know, as I said with Peter Hayne in, in the early 1970s, everyone, the whites in South Africa, were obviously a, against him because he was trying to stop cricket tours and trying to stop rugby tours, and we were trying to play a representative of cricket or rugby for for for, the, for South Africa. Uh, but as the years went on, I suddenly realised um, that he was right, and uh, because sport in South Africa was so big, particularly rugby, uh, but also cricket, uh, that it, it would help break down the apartheid, which ultimately it did. As you say, you've done events with Peter Hayne. The first one you did, I think, was chaired by my father. And the second one you did, unless you've done others that I don't know of, was with me stepping in as the chair. And it was such a powerful experience for me because here you were on one of on one side of me who had had your career taken away, your test career, the bulk of it. And there on the other side of me was the man who had been partly responsible for that with his campaigning and I think you found that as well a, a powerful experience and how brilliant that we were able to come together that you guys were able to come together and reflect on that era and give your different insights into how it felt yeah I think it, it was very powerful and, and I think um, you know I think you know you, you did a great job in, in, in the way you handled it because it was never going to be easy and I think Peter Hayne uh, did a fantastic job um you know the way he expressed himself and he he almost i think he saved me at one occasion you, you you probably didn't recall it but we were looking back and he was saying what the apartheid rules were 
and it was saying, well, you know, I was brought up in that period, and here I am thinking that I actually lived under these regulations uh, for non-white people, and I was almost um, lost for words, as it were, because it's almost embarrassing to think that I'd actually lived under these circumstances. And I remember Peter came to me and he said, yeah, yeah, well, we all lived in a little vacuum. You know, we, I was explaining, you know, I was brought up in Durban, which was uh, English, um, and we treated the non-whites fine as far as I was concerned. Um, not trying to knock any other any other part of South Africa, but it, it, it was predominant, predominantly English. And and he actually said there, you know, we were all brought up in, in a vacuum. So I suppose that's what it was. But to me, it was um, difficult to to explain how I could actually live uh, under those rules. What were those rules like to live under? What do you what do you remember about them? Well, that the non-whites, there was specific areas for the non-whites, and and just generally they were considered second-class citizens, which, you know, is just absolutely mind-boggling, really. Um, and the first time I, I ever noticed it was in 1963, and I was 16 years old, South African uh, schools to it, obviously South African schools being only the whites. And we were going from Heathrow uh, into London to our hotel and looking at the side of the roads, and there were white people doing manual work. And in my mind, I was thinking, but in South Africa, that doesn't happen. You know, the only people I've seen doing manual work are the non-whites. And sort of, it really, I think, from from that day, I, I had a, a different outlook on, on on South Africa, and it grew more and more uh, the, the longer the longer I um, lived and played cricket and played, you know, w- with the non-whites. Um, so it, it it did have an effect on me, but it got it got better and better. For, for want of trying to explain myself, uh, my feelings got not bitter towards South Africa, uh, but but trying to do something to uh, to help. How impressed were you with Nelson Mandela and the way in which he brought South Africa out of that period? Well, he was just, you know, absolutely amazing. I mean, um, you know, what, what he did when he came out of prison, having been there for 27, I don't know how many, many years, uh, was just absolutely extraordinary. And I, I will never, ever forget, um, I was at... Uh, I was actually, England were playing Pakistan at, at Lords at the time of the 95 World Cup final when South Africa, the Springboks, took on the might of the All Blacks. And the All Blacks in those days uh, had Joe Molomo, who was, you know, an absolute huge giant of a man, very, very strong. And it was almost playing against 16 men when he was around. And I think that it's fair to say that they were they were pretty, pretty strong favourites, the All Blacks, to beat the Springboks. But Nelson Mandela, he started it off by, um, I know that the, the, the school of ANC got together and, and said, well, you know, we've got the Rugby World Cup uh, coming up in a couple of months because he was only inaugurated in June 94. Let's not, let's not forget, you know. So we're talking about, you know, sort of 14 months down the line when the World Cup rugby was on. And the, the feeling amongst, um, I believe, the feeling amongst the ANC, as you can see from that film Invictus, was... Um, you know, they were supported but play very low key. And Nelson Mandela said otherwise, they, that they must ANC must support it and he would be the number one figure in supporting it, and which he did. I mean, he turned up at the first game in Cape Town, at Newlands, and uh, the hosts played against the, the previous winners. Uh, and I th- that must have been Australia because we played Australia. And we won that game. And Nelson Mandela attended that match, and the, the roar from the crowd and the way 
the sort of crowd responded and the way the team responded was unbelievable. South Africa won that first first match. Suddenly, people were saying, hold on, South Africa have never played at a World Cup rugby game. Maybe we've actually got a chance of winning. And I put that down to to Nelson Mandela. And as I said, I'll never forget that the, the final. When we won, he went on with a with a uh, Francois Pina number on his back and the Springbok jersey and wore a Springbok cap on. And after the game, you know, to see him dancing and and you know being so happy was was just unbelievable. And I'll never forget my friend and I we're, we're down at a, a mate of mine's house, a friend of mine from South Africa. We're uh, down at a mate of mine's house in London, just down the road, since John's Wood. And we were sort of at the end, sort of hugging each other and then crying. It was just uh, something very, very special. And then, of course, in 2019, fast forward, what, sort of two and a half decades or, or so, and South Africa win the World Cup with a black captain, Sia Khaleesi, against England. Absolutely incredible. And it was great to see Khaleesi there, they you know, playing such a predominant role. And again, it, it, it was, you know, something very, very special. I think it, it, it all it was a rub off. From our great leader, uh, it really was, and he, you know, he had such a an influence uh, from South Africa when we became a democracy, a total democracy, uh, that we all realised how important a role he had played, and I think we owed it to him, uh, even though he's not around, uh, to do the best we could, both on the field and off the field, to support his his philosophies and his his ideals. What was it like, Mike, to move from a position where the whites ruled anti-democratically and under a racist regime to, as you say, a democracy? What was that like for you? What was your experience of that transition? I, I obviously recall it. And, and Mandela was the, the guy who was so much on people's minds. And the transition was, it, it seemed pretty pretty natural. I think for the non-whites, it, it wasn't natural, obviously. Uh, but for myself, it was natural. For some of the whites, it wasn't natural. But I, I just remember a, 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 a lot better feeling, you know, towards South Africa, towards the people of South Africa, particularly the non-whites. And you know, maybe that's the the reason why I'm, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been doing what I've been doing of, of late in the, in, the, in the schools and that. Yes, and we'll come to your charity work in a bit. I, I do want to say that. During apartheid, you and other players did stage a walk-off, didn't you? Just tell us a bit about that. Well, South Africa toured, uh, we were meant to tour England in 1970 with the Basil affair, which is another long story. Uh, and then in 1971-72 season, we were due to tour Australia, the 71-72 being uh, October, November to, to February, March. And uh, at the end of the 71 season, which was April, April 71, there was a match scheduled to take place in Cape Town, organised by the by the government. Apparently it was a part of a South African Games or something like that. I'm not sure, au fait, with exactly what, what, it, what, it, what it was. But it was a game between the rest of South Africa and the Curry Cup winners who had won, won the league. The Curry Cup winners being Transvaal and the rest of South Africa were obviously selected from the whole of South Africa, plus the guys in Rhodesia. Barry Richards uh, was going to be a, a guest for Transvaal because he had been playing in Australia. And just prior to that match, where it was scheduled to start, the South African Cricket Association had applied to the government uh, to include two non-whites to tour Australia with the South African team. And the government had turned that down. And 
I thought I knew, and I think I, I did know, that the majority of, of the cricketers in South Africa wanted the playing fields level. We wanted to play with and against whoever was, was there, whether they were whites or non-whites. And we felt maybe this was a chance because we had 22 of the top cricketers in the country, uh, we could get a consensus of opinion and we could make some sort of statement. Whereas we never had the chance before because if it was just a test team, uh, who knows whether it was the consensus amongst the first-class cricketers in South Africa. So we decided, right, we've got to do something about this. We want to, to put our name forward and, and show how we feel. And there were four of us uh, seconded, as it were, by the two teams to to have a look into it, which was Peter Pollock, Graham Pollock, Dennis Lindsay, and myself. And we were discussing what we should do, what we shouldn't do. We, we had the blessing of the Transvaal team, obviously the blessing of the rest of the world, but we had the blessing of the Transvaal team, which whatever we thought was fitting, they would go along with. And uh, we had decided, well, the, the, the best thing to do to make a statement is not play this match. And we were sitting at, uh, around talking about it, and uh, over in the corner was was a, a friend of mine by the name of Charles Fortune, who was a famous uh, commentator in South Africa, along, along the lines of John Arlott's days. And I said to him, because I knew him fairly well through my wife's tennis as well, because he used to commentate on tennis as well as cricket. I said, why don't we get a, an older and wiser head? Because he knows our feelings, uh, what he would advise. So I went across to Charles and he always called me Michael. He said, Michael, he thought about it. He had thought about it for a while. And he said, Michael, I wouldn't do that if I were you. What's going to happen? There's going to be huge repercussions and you're going to want to have all the friends you can get because you're going to have a lot of enemies. And he said, what I would do is there have been some 14,000 tickets, 13,000, 14,000 tickets sold for this match. He said, what I suggest you do is you bowl the first ball, you walk off the field, you hand a statement to the press, come back 10 minutes later and carry on the match. So you won't um, adhere there. The, the spectators, they'll be still uh, very much want to watch the cricket, obviously. So that's exactly what we did. We went uh, we went on the field. Uh, I bowled the first ball to Barry Richards, who was playing for Transvaal. He actually pushed it into the covers and ran a single, which wasn't 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 scheduled. But anyway, he's, he was off the mark. Um, and then we handed a press statement, which basically said, you know, we the cricketers of South Africa feel that at that time we we showed our showed our feelings, and we totally support uh, the application by the South African Cricket Association to, in two, to include two not two non-whites to tour Australia, and furthermore adhere to merit being the criteria on the cricket field. And the, I think the important words were merit being the criteria on the cricket field, meaning we wanted to play with the against any everybody. That that was pretty pretty much clear. Um, I didn't get much repercussion at the time because I was going back to Gloucestershire. But apparently, uh, Peter Pollock and Graham Pollock were called in and asked what the hell they were doing um, because we that, that we weren't meant to have done what we did. And it transpired that a lot of the South African Cricket Association then, we're going back to 1971, supported the government. In fact, uh, Don Mackay Coggill, was, who, who was, uh, to everyone's mind, a certainty to go on that tour, 
Uh, he captained the Transvaal side because Oli Bakker was away doing his doctorship uh, somewhere in one of the townships in Johannesburg. And uh, he was called in after the team had been announced. By the way, we had, we still the team was being announced at the end of that, that match. Makai Coggle wasn't in the team, and he was also called in and told that he would never, ever play for South Africa again because he was one of the culprits behind this walk-off. So um, I, I think we, we did show our hand. I think it, it proves how the ANC thought of cricket and what cricket had done because in 1991, uh, this is three years before Nelson Mandela was inaugurated, we went to Lords and we were allowed back into international cricket, obviously with the blessing of of the ANC. And one of the guys on that committee was Steve Schwetti, who became our Minister of Sport, and, and he was a great guy. Uh, he really was. So um, I think cricket had, had had done as much as they possibly could have to to try and play multiracial cricket, as, as it was called. Um, and I think the ANC obviously recognised that. That's why um, we, we could be recognised back in the international scene, because um, the ANC had supported us. What was it like being the coach of South Africa? I mentioned that victory at Lords in 1994, but what was it like generally being the coach of South Africa as you led the Proteas back into international cricket? There must have been a lot of things to juggle. I can imagine that being a, a very high-pressure environment. I mean, for cricket reasons and for political reasons. As far as the cricket was concerned, in 1992, you took South Africa to the semi-final of the World Cup in Australia and the weather intervened didn't it spectacularly towards the end and your target was reduced I think many people would say very unfairly to sort of 26 off one Un unfairly only because those were the rules of the the day and you could have you could have reached a World Cup final at the at the first time of asking after reintegration into the international community. So there was there was a lot going on cricket wise. There was you did a tour, didn't you? I think a limited overs tour of India. There was a lot going on cricket wise, but of course there was the politics swirling around. So just talk to us a little bit about what that was like for you personally. Well, I think first of all, being coach in in ninety one when we went to went to India uh, was absolutely mind boggling. Because I remember I was director of cricket at Northampton, and this is going into June or July 1991, when Oli Bacher phoned me and told, told me that we were back into international cricket. And he said then that it's fantastic. We had nothing coming up. Uh, the World Cup was probably organized. Uh, it was too late to to get back into to play with the World Cup, which was scheduled for February, March. I think it was 92. And, you know, I was going to be the coach to, to go to, 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 to India. And the India tour had come about because apparently Pakistan were meant to tour India and they pulled out for some reason. Uh, so we were asked to take their place to play three one-day internationals against India, which was really so very, very exciting for everybody. And I think my initial impression of that was, you know, how friendly uh, and hospitable the Indian people, people were because here we were. Uh, a bunch of South Africans, although we we had a few non-whites in the team. Um, in the 14 or 15, we had three or four guys. But here we were, were uh, the white South African, basically the white South African team, first uh, first team that's been allowed to tour for, for 21 years or what it is. Uh, you know, what reaction are we going to have when we tour a country like, like India? And it was absolutely amazing. And the people were so warm. They were so hospitable and so friendly. And they just wanted to see good cricket. A lot of them obviously knew the names of the guys in the team. 
and, and it was it was so exciting. And I, I just remember a great deal of warmth that I've always been very India's always been quite close in my heart because of those those times there when um, it was just cricket they were after and they just loved their cricket. It's unbelievable as we see now from from the IPL. So for me, uh, it was easy, and, and there there was no pressure uh, as far as being the coach or even the players. And I remember in '92 when we ended up going to the World Cup. An interesting story about that is uh, a story that goes again. We, we'll never know whether it's true or not. But one of the stories I heard was that a, a Swiss reporter, funny enough, and as you know, Switzerland uh, don't play cricket at all. Um, and a Swiss reporter was interviewing Nelson Mandela and he asked Nelson Mandela a few questions. And he said, well, uh, this, this this game cricket, apparently there's a World Cup coming up um, in a few months, whatever it was. He said, uh, are South Africa going to play? And Nelson Mandela answered, of course they are. And whether that's the reason why we, we, we got back in, I don't know. But it just shows the power of, of Nelson Mandela. But in 92, the World Cup, Steve Schwetti, who ended up, as I said, uh, our Minister of Sport, he came with us to, to, for the first part of the first couple of games, for the first game against Australia. And and there were no political tensions, really. Um, you know, we felt at ease what we were doing. The only political pressure, I think, came when there was – at that time, during that World Cup, there was going to be a, refer a referendum among the white people uh, ab about whether the changes should take place. Obviously, it was going to be affirmative, but you never know. Uh, so that was only a little bit of tension, although as far as we were concerned, we were there to play cricket and we were totally supported by, by Steve Schwetti, the ANC, by everybody, and the whole country was behind us. That's the way we felt, uh, which was absolutely fantastic. I, you know, dare I say that, you know, times have changed since then. But at that time in the 92 World Cup, we felt very at ease. Uh, we concentrated on the cricket and, and we did it to the best of our ability. Mike, you'd go on to be an international referee, but you've also done a lot of commentary. And I wonder if you look at your career in those four strands, so playing, coaching, refereeing and commentating, which do you think gave you the most pleasure? Was it playing? Could you ever replicate that buzz? Yeah, I think obviously playing playing is the ultimate. I mean, you know, I really enjoyed playing cricket. I, I loved it. Uh, I loved being part of the game. You know, for the for the whole duration, whether it be batting, batting, bowling, fielding, or, or being captain. So the the playing was 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 number one to me by uh, by by a long way. After that, I enjoyed commentating a lot. I, I really did uh, enjoy that. Um, match refereeing. I was a director of cricket and the coaching. Um, I suppose being a match referee was was very interesting. It had its moments. Um, as a coach, uh, was was fine. It was great to be have the chance just to to be part of the part of the scene that you know we weren't part of for the, for those twenty odd years. So to have the privilege and honour of, of being coached to to that that team uh, as we got back was 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 tremendously rewarding and to see how how well the guys played. But I suppose of those four, I mean, I enjoyed being director of cricket as well at, at various places. I was director of cricket at, at uh, Free State when and Sunsi Cronier and Alan Donald were starting off. And then I was in Natal and I and also in at Northampton. I, I enjoyed that. Um, but without doubt, uh, the playing aspect was was numero uno. And as a player, you were a, something of a, a folk hero, weren't you? A cult hero in, in Gloucestershire. I mean... Some fans even renamed Gloucestershire Proctorshire, didn't they? You, you you had a very special relationship with Gloucestershire cricket. Well, I think I did. I mean, Gloucestershire had given me the opportunity to to further my career, and, and at that stage, 
there was no professional cricket in South Africa. Um, and I went over in 65 with Barry Richards to play in the second team. And, uh, you know, we had a, a, an absolutely wonderful time. We, we loved, the, loved the cricket. We played the second eleven championship, um, which we won. Uh, we had a great bunch of, of teammates, uh, which I enjoyed playing with. And I, I sort of look back and it started from from that sort of season in 65. And then 68, when I became a, an overseas player, I was allowed to play then. I, I enjoyed it very much. I, I enjoyed the people of Gloucestershire. And to me, it was very rewarding to actually win trophies for them because I feel sort of indebted to them. And the support we had, the support I had in the county was fantastic. And, you know, amongst ourselves at times and amongst the community in, Glouc in Bristol, uh, you know, we sort of name it the Glorious Gloucesters. And, you know, we we had our ups and downs, but we, we always had, and I think this is where I was very fortunate in my career and that the teams I played in, uh, you know, we had we had tremendous team spirit. Um, and uh, you hear stories about when you have a few problem areas uh, with other teams that they haven't got the sort of same team spirit of camaraderie we had. And that's disappointing because that's one thing sort of I relished. And I think the players that played around me did as well. And, you know, a bit embarrassing to be called Proctor Shire, but um, apparently the other players didn't mind too much. So, you know, from that aspect, uh, and as I said, we won a trophy in 73, we won a trophy in 77, and then we nearly won the championship in 77 as well. And just to be able to do that um, and pay, to play the supporters back was, was very, very rewarding to me. And I would... I would never have, have left Gloucestershire. I was approached by by one club. I don't know when it was early-ish into my career at Gloucestershire, and I was appalled that anyone could actually ask me to to leave Gloucestershire. It would never even entered my mind. What does it mean to you to see players of colour emerge in South Africa? To have watched some of the quality of Hashim Amla, to watch Rabada now currently part of the South African team, to to see a team that that represents. A much broader South Africa, of course, than it possibly could have done in the apartheid years. To me, it was it was really very rewarding from one aspect, and seeing seeing these non-whites playing and, and representing their communities, seeing them play for South Africa, fantastic. But on the other hand, looking back, there's a great deal of sadness just to think how many other players could have had the opportunity to play and weren't allowed to play because of the regime in South Africa. So, um, yes, on one hand, fantastic. On the other, um, I still feel that sort of dis disappointment is, is still there. And tell us about the, the charitable work that you're doing, Mike, because this is about trying in a small but important way to help change continue in your country. Well, it, it started about um, 12, 13 years ago, and I was um, finishing. I was a convener of the National Selection Committee in South Africa, and someone else had taken over that job. I'd done my time. And a friend of mine said to me, what are you going to be doing after cricket? Because your cricket career is sort of coming to a bit of an end. And I said, I wasn't sure. And he said, I know you're thinking. He said, if you can find some non-white schools, some black schools, find a, a couple of coaches, do whatever you think is right. I'll give you a salary. And and you get on with, with looking after them. So one thing led to another. A very good friend of mine, Rodney Balumba, who I'd been dealing with before. I actually got him to, I was director of Natal Cricket. I got him to Natal years before. And I approached him and we found a school called Ottawa, uh, which has about 12, 1300 kids. And uh, I was there for about a year, year and a half, uh, coaching only 60, 50, 60 of their pupils uh, when the sponsorship fell out. 
uh, the sponsor fell through. But, you know, having mixed with the kids and, and seeing how they operate and, and just living a bit of a life with them, um, you couldn't just pull the plug on them. So I, I formed a foundation uh, because I was selling memorabilia uh, to pay for the coaches uh, at that time. Um, so I've been doing that for, for the last 10, 10 12 years. And uh, we've now got another school out near, near where Otto is. But, but to me, uh, I use cricket as, as the vehicle to, to better their lives. Uh, since COVID, you know, the cricket has, has taken a bit of a side swipe for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but why we do the whole school now is because about six or eight years ago, the principal of Ottawa came to me and said, you know, the kids are enjoying the, the cricket lessons. Um, uh, how many kids can join in? Uh, who can join in? And she said, well, you know, what have you in mind? And I said, well, I really want to just try and help the kids to have a, a bit of a better life. And if we can do it through cricket being the vehicle and uh, have a, have a you know, a phys ed lesson with them, uh, it might help. And she said, well, that's that's interesting. And one thing led to another, and the whole school wanted to be part of it. Um, cricket lessons, if you like, for want of a better word. So now I've got, got four coaches around, and we do the PT lesson uh, for Ottawa. So we do the whole school. And the, the the other school we, which is nearby, um, we've got about 750 kids. We also do their PT lesson uh, for the week, so it, it involves a, a lot of work for the coaches, but the kids really love it. You know, they play games, they have tug of wars, they do relays, and then I think the cricket's taken a bit of sideswipe side swipe because of it. And I had nets put in Ottawa, uh, at the other school I haven't had nets put in as yet because they're going to move uh, their facilities to a, another area which is a lot bigger. Um, but the, the kids love it. And Rodney Rodney is, is brilliant with them. And one of the worst punishments that the kids can have is if they they have to sit in the classroom while the other kids are, have their so-called cricket lesson, have their PT lesson. And what I'm trying to do now is, because I had started with the other school this year, I want to try and have a, a sports day between the two schools, which... Uh, I can assure you they, these kids are so competitive, it'll be literally like the Olympic Games mm. games for them. And I'm just looking forward to trying to get that all together and see these two schools have some fun together. How can people donate, Mike? Well, I've got a website, Mike Proctor Foundation. If they Google me, they can find all the information they want there. And, um, you know, we need we need all the help we can get. I just want to make sure that all the coaches are, are paid. Uh, in fact, I had a, when I, I've just got back, and and the other school at Gonubi, uh, they needed some electricity. They needed some lights put in down by the school, which uh, they didn't have before because it got dark, particularly during during winter months. Uh, and that cost us a bit of money. And I had that done. And I just got a, a thank you note from them uh, yesterday or the day before. So little things like that. We've we've donated food parcels during during lockdown and COVID. Uh, between myself and Hollywood Bets, who are one of my sponsors, uh, we donated just over six tons of food. And the important thing about the donation of the food is it must go to the right source. And particularly living in uh, the community around the Ottawa School, we had access to all the uh, all the pupils and their their parents or their, their uncles or aunties who were looking after them. So every one of those food parcels went to the right source, which to me and to everyone else was uh, very very important. Final question, Mike. Tell us a bit about yourself outside of cricket. Tell us what you're like as a person. How you live. How you live your life. What are your passions? Well, passions. I haven't got great passions really. Um, I still follow a bit of horse racing. 
Um, I play I play golf, and I enjoy seeing the kids uh, and having fun with the kids. But generally, sort of semi-retired, I suppose, or you can never never get retired these days. But just living a sort of re- relaxed life and and really just trying to help other people. And do you play tennis with your wife? <laughs> no, Matt, I think you're forgetting how old I am. No, well, I can't. Play, I don't play tennis with my wife, but and she hasn't played for a long time either. Um, so no, we 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 haven't played tennis against each other for many many years. Who won when you did? Well, she did, but I I happened to beat her once, and it came about. I think I, I think I cheated just a little bit because I think she's. I, t- I said she'd had a double fault when it wasn't, and one thing led to another, and then I won a point, and I claimed the game. But she said I didn't win, but I said I did. So did she re- argument about that. <laughs> did she represent South Africa? She that was number two South Africa. Um, yeah, in South Africa, uh, for for many years she played obviously at at Wimbledon, got to the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open, and generally played a lot in Europe at that time and America. Mike Proctor, it's so good to have been able to ask you these 20 questions. I, I really enjoyed spending time with you in person when you were here in England and we did that event with Lord Hain, Peter Hain. And it, it, it is an extraordinary story that you that you have to tell. So I'm so glad that we were able to touch on, on some of it. Thank you so much for answering my questions. No, thank you very much, Matt. And it's a, it is really an honour and a privilege to be able to talk to you and, and show my feelings.